0: Well, church, I don't want anyone to cry, but this is our last sermon in 2 Corinthians. And we've been here really just kind of hammering a simple subject over and over and over again. And I'm sure some of you are actually quite tired of it, and you're ready to do something a little more positive. But we've been hammering this idea of finding power through weakness, and what it looks like for a believer in Jesus Christ to actually... Uh, lower themselves so that God might raise them up. For a believer in Christ to actually embrace their own weakness so that God's strength might be perfect. For a believer in Christ to welcome shame, to welcome, dare I say, the persecution that may come from following Jesus and considering it an honor and a joy to be able to sacrifice for the name of Christ. To have this, this mentality that the disciples had that the apostles had (laughs) that Daryl is experiencing right now (laughs) as his phone was going off and experiencing uh, all the shame's been covered by the cross Daryl don't worry (laughs) see this was a perfect example thank you so much for proving the point see how much joy we have right now ah but As we come into this final sermon, both Paul and I are going to make our final pleas. Our final pleas, because one thing that we know about the Scripture is that the Scripture was written to a particular people in a particular moment, to a particular situation. It was written to them, but it was written for all of us. It is not appropriate for us to just read the Bible as a history lesson. In fact, when we finish this letter, there will be a big question mark because Paul has been challenging the Corinthian church to respond a very particular way to a challenging circumstance. If you recall, there are these outside leaders who have come in and they've basically been accusing Paul of being weak, of not being a very good apostle, not being someone worthy to be followed. And Paul says, look, it's not my reputation that's on the line. It's the gospel that's on the line. If you're going to follow these other people who are living contrary to the way of Christ, and you're going to abandon me, and I live the way of Christ, Paul says, then then you'll be abandoning the gospel. And he calls them to come back in this final plea, and the book or the letter will end, and we don't get to know what happened. We don't know exactly how the Corinthian church responded. We have hints, so I'll just give you one little one little teaser, we see Paul writing the book of Romans, most likely from Corinth, which means that while he was there, he had enough time to care about someone else, which is a good sign, right? He obviously wasn't overwhelmed with the concerns of the Corinthians that he couldn't even write to the Roman church. However, we, we just don't know. But the real question that we're going to end with today is, what will we do in response to Paul's challenge? What will we do? in response to this final plea. So if you'll open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. We're going to finish out the book of 2 Corinthians today. And let's read together. If you're, if you're at home, grab your Bible, open up a browser to 2 Corinthians 13. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, there is one underneath a chair. That either that you're sitting on or the chair next to you will have a Bible in it underneath. And so we invite you to read along So Paul is going to now make his case, his final case, for the Corinthians to repent from their behavior, from their attitudes, and turn back not only to him, but more importantly to Christ. And he says, This, this will be my third visit to you. So Paul first went to Corinth when he shared the gospel with these with these Gentiles, with these uh that some of them were, were uh God fearers, Gentiles who they believed in the God of the Old Testament. They believed in the God of Israel, but they had not gone through a conversion process to become Jewish. But they were following the Lord in some way. There were people who were very far from the Lord. They were involved in cultic practices and false religions and mystery cults. And there were people. There were even some Jews who had who had embraced Christ as their Messiah, and embraced Jesus as their Messiah. And they're all here in Corinth together in this church And this church exists specifically because Paul went to Corinth And he planted the seeds of the gospel And God caused it to grow and produce this wonderful fruit Which was the Corinthian church And his second visit he describes in this letter as a painful visit He went to Corinth to try to correct an error there And it was a hurtful time He left sad he left with everything still up in the air, none of these issues resolved. And so he's writing this final letter to go ahead of him so that when he arrives, they'll be ready for his visit. He says, I'm coming to visit you a third time. And he quotes uh, the Old Testament here. He says, Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And Paul's not using this in a legal sense. He's kind of making a, it's almost a metaphorical use. He's like, I came once, I came twice, and now I'm coming again. So there are your three witnesses. He's not making a legal case yet. But he says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. If you remember in the last chapter, he kind of ends talking about people who needed to repent of their sexual immorality and debauchery and things like that front, that he actually addressed in the first letter to the Corinthians. But then on top of it, there's this division. The more recent sin is this division. The people are they're torn whether they should continue with Paul and the gospel or whether they should follow these false leaders and ultimately a false gospel, even if it sounds a whole lot like the gospel that Paul preached. So he says... Uh, I will not spare those who sin earlier or any of the others since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealings with you. So what is Paul saying here? He says, look, there's, there's a paradigm you need to understand. And it's this relationship between weakness and power. This relationship between the crucified Christ and the risen Christ. The Christ who is meek and the Christ who returns with power and authority. Just last night, I was having a conversation with my sister-in-law. and She was talking about reading the book of Revelation. And here's Jesus in his flowing robe. And, and there's a sword coming out of his mouth right and he brings judgment and fire and he brings destruction in his wake you know this same jesus who died on the cross is the same jesus who comes back in glory and in power and in wrath this same jesus that we say you know the culture loves to say to the church sometimes in condemnation and there's a place for it but it's not universally true they say oh jesus is loving the implication being he would never judge anyone. I don't know what Bible they're reading. I don't know what Jesus they're looking at. Jesus is both. (laughs) You know, Jesus is always kind. Have you ever seen Jesus talk to a Pharisee in the Scripture? (laughs) You know, Jesus wasn't nice. He was loving, but he wasn't nice, right? Jesus can be harsh at times. Jesus can be stern at times. And there's this little phrase that I love and I actually don't even know where it comes from and it says something like this. The gospel comforts the afflicted but it afflicts the comfortable. And Jesus is constantly afflicting the comfortable. The religious elites who think they have it all together, he puts them down. He puts them in their place. He calls them whitewashed tombs and and empty graves and a brood of vipers. And then a woman caught in adultery who's been dragged in front of the the impromptu court of popular opinion without the man by the way present with her he says whoever has sinned whoever has not sinned cast the first tone but it's very instructive here he says your sins are forgiven go and sin no more jesus isn't soft on sin he's just really gentle with people who are humble Right, but when you are haughty, Jesus takes a different stance, and so Paul will too. Look what he says. He says, um, "I will not spare those who sin earlier, or any of the others." Look, if you are if you are unrepentant right now, I am not going to spare you. Why? Because you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. The Corinthians have been saying all this time, Paul, these these apostles that have come, these other leaders that have come. They do powerful things. They they do miracles. They have signs and wonders. When they speak, it's like God himself is speaking. They're powerful speakers. And you, Paul, you're kind of weak. You're kind of mellow. You're, you're, I don't know what to say. How should we put it? You're just not that great. And Paul says, you want to see something with power? I'm going to show you power. I'm going to bring judgment on those who are unrepentant. You ask for it, buddy. You're going to get it. That's what he's saying. He says, uh, uh, Jesus is not weak in dealing with you. He's powerful. And even though he was crucified, he's powerful. So even though I've come weakly, now I'm going to come with power. And there's this relationship that's perfectly manifested and embodied in Jesus Christ, that weakness and power go together hand in hand. In this world, we've been conditioned to believe that weakness and power are opposites. They're not really opposites. What, what weakness, what humility, what gentleness are in Christ is the intentional choice to restrain His glory. And what power is, is merely the revelation of His glory. So when Jesus comes to embody uh, humanity and walk on earth as a human being, he is limiting his glory, and so he appears weak. When Jesus goes to the cross and refuses to call on the legions of angels that could take him off of the cross and, and relieve him of that, of that difficult and, and uh, deadly encounter with Roman authorities, Jesus is being weak because he's concealing the glory that he has as the God of the universe. When Jesus allows himself to, in a sense, be put down so that we could be raised up, he's minimizing his own glory for the sake of others through love. But it's that same love that will motivate him to express his glory to those who are unrepentant. It's that same love. Because what happens, by the way, when you never confront someone who's walking down a path towards destruction, which is what sin is, right? Sin is a pathway towards destruction. What happens when you don't stop someone who's going towards destruction? They're destroyed. This is why people do interventions for alcoholics. This is why people uh, have what they call tough love. And look, there's all sorts of horrible examples of tough love right? Sometimes tough love is not really all that loving in practice. But when it's done well, tough love is the idea that I love you so much that I'm not going to let you keep doing this to yourself. And so there comes a point where Jesus says, you know, I've been holding off to see if you would turn, but you haven't turned. And so now I'm going to intervene. And the intervention is not going to be pretty. And you know, sometimes we think that there's kind of like this mean, wrathful God in the Old Testament, and then there's this nice, fluffy, care Jesus in the New Testament. That's just not how it is. God is incredibly loving in the Old Testament. He's incredibly patient with sin in the Old Testament. But when Israel turns against him consistently for generations, God sends them into exile. The most loving thing he could do, because it was exile that turned their hearts back to him. The same thing in the New Testament. When, when you've got people who are, who are their hearts are, are dark and they're turned against the Lord, Jesus calls them all sorts of nasty names and, and, and puts them down in public and is harsh with them. He's turning over tables. Do you know who the first leaders in the Jerusalem church were? They were Pharisees. You had the apostles and then the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. You know, these are people that turned because of God's harsh treatment with them. Paul got some harsh treatment. He was blinded on the road to Damascus. And Jesus challenged him and confronted him in his own sin, in his own darkness of heart. And Paul was a changed man. You see, Jesus is loving whether he's concealing through weakness or revealing through power but they're two sides of the same coin. So Paul says, look, you know, a true Christian leader will be like Jesus. He says, likewise, we are weak in Him, yet by God's power, we will live with Him in our dealing with you. And what he means is, we looked like the crucified Christ when we were with you, but we're going to look like the resurrected Christ when we, come, when we come back, because we're coming back in strength and in power. And our true leader is will use power only as necessary for correction at the right time. And it's never for the sake of themselves. You see, we see all throughout the book of Second Corinthians that these other leaders, they use their power to puff themselves up. But Paul only uses his power to build up others. Paul only uses his strength to correct people who are on a pathway to destruction. He doesn't use it to justify his apostleship, He doesn't use it to gain money or influence. Throughout the letter, he's used his weakness to gain influence. He'll use his power to correct when the time is right, when Jesus ordains it, right? And so he says, look, because Jesus hates your sin and because I hate your sin, I'm not going to let it stand. I'm on my way, and when I get there, it's not going to be pretty. And you're going to see what apostolic authority really looks like. Now what could Paul do? Well, he could literally declare the entire church outside of the will of God and what we would call excommunicate them. To take them out of fellowship with the rest of the churches and to declare that the gospel is not in them. That they have not shown proof of the gospel being at work in their hearts because they've been uh, they've been in this place of, of opposition to Paul and, more importantly, to the message that he was preaching. Now, how, where do we see that happening today? I mean, you could almost throw a rock in New England and hit a church that's not following the Lord, that's not submitted to the gospel, that is, and I would say, um, confidently denying the scriptures and the gospel You know, it's interesting that in the book of Revelation, which I brought up earlier, there's no rapture in the book of Revelation. The the idea of the rapture comes from different parts of the New Testament, but not in the book of Revelation. Do you know what the church is doing in the book of Revelation? Uh, It's being judged by Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to these lampstands and he's removing them from churches, which I think is a symbol of removing the Holy Spirit from these churches and God's favor from these churches. Jesus' interaction with the churches in Revelation is judgment for the most part. It's not, it's not uh, you know, calling them out in the sense of calling them out of danger. He's calling them out in the sense of saying, you're wrong and you need to fix this, and judgment is coming, and this is your last chance. This is the attitude that Paul is displaying here, right? And so he goes on to say, look, if that's the case, if the case is that, that you've been found lacking And you're unrepentant Then it's time to examine yourself You need to take stock of the situation Look what he says Examine yourselves This is verse 5 Examine yourselves to see whether you are even in the faith You know this whole time The Corinthians have been Pretending that they're a judge over Paul And they're testing him To see if he's a true apostle He says look you have no business testing me The Lord has tested me Test yourself Be the judge in your own life. Why don't you take that mirror out and see if you pass the test yourself. Do you even have faith? Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Now, what is he doing? Paul is doing something uh, uh, juicily uh, intelligent here. I mean, he's just, he's gonna lay a little trap for the Corinthians, and it's just fun to watch him set it and to see how they're going to walk into it. He says, look, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. What is he saying? He says, look, you're going to examine yourselves, and you're either going to find that Jesus isn't in you, or you're going to find he is in you, and he's this Jesus who was the crucified Savior as much as he was the resurrected Savior you're going to find this Jesus who embraced weakness as much as he embraced power. And this is a little cutting reality here for the Corinthians. They either have to remain eager for power and admit that Christ is not in them, or they have to agree that Christ is in them and let go of their desire for power. The way they were doing it before, they were using their power to judge Paul. Now Paul's using their power for them to judge themselves. And, and he says, you're not going to find that we failed the test. We have embraced, meaning Paul himself, I have embraced this Christ who is both weak and strong. Have you? He says, now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. It's like, I don't want you to fail. I don't want you to sin. I don't want you to continue in this disobedience. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right even though we may seem to have failed. Paul has set himself up to actually go deeper into weakness on behalf of the Corinthians because the claim has been, Paul, when you show up, you're weak and your letters, you're strong and then you show up again and you're weak again. So now Paul's writing him a very strong letter and he says he's coming in power, but if they repent and they embrace the Jesus Christ who is both weak and strong, if they embrace this paradigm of of humility, paradigm of meekness, then Paul will not come in strength. He will come in weakness again. Thus proving their point, shaming himself, but they'll be better off for it. And here we have this second paradigm of a Christian leader. A Christian leader, a good Christian leader will not only use the power of God to to confront sin, a good Christian leader will humiliate and not just humble but humiliate him or herself if it means that someone else will be raised up it's an attitude that says I will suffer shame for the gospel and the people that I serve right would these other leaders do anything like that for the Corinthian church would they intentionally embrace shame for the sake of the Corinthians growing in Christ never never but Paul will because he only wants to build people up. Look at what he says. We cannot do anything against the truth but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. Literally it means that you may be perfect. And I think it means in perfect harmony. That's how the interpreter is taking it. But it's literally just this word for mature or perfect. Our prayer is that you may be perfect. Mature. Mature. In perfect harmony, this is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. You know I hear stories consistently of people who come out of hurtful uh, churches from from hurtful pastoral situations where pastors and church leaders use their authority to tear people down, to pit people against one another so that they can be elevated. That is not the gospel embodied. That is the opposite of the gospel embodied. Right? And what Paul says is, he said, look, I'm not going to use power to tear you down. I won't use the power of God in me, the authority that I have to do something that will hurt you. I will only use it to raise you up. And if your complaint is that I'm not displaying power, then just keep sinning. Then you'll see it. Just keep going away from the Lord, and you'll see that power on display. But when you follow Christ Jesus, you will not see Paul or a good Christian leader exerting their authority simply to exert their authority. You know, this goes for all types of power and all types of leaders. If you are a leader in your workplace, if you are a leader in your home, if you are a leader in your family, in your community, wherever you are, only use power for building others up. And what it looks like is it looks like you not getting as much glory. It's that part of jesus that says i'm going to conceal my glory for the sake of someone else right it's it's where where you're constantly uh, congratulating others for the job well done even though you had a big part in it it's intentionally uh taking the blame for your team even though it probably wasn't you who messed up now this is what it looks like to be to embrace the gospel It's not just embracing the fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave. It's embracing who Jesus was, the way he lived. And we see an example of it in Paul, a really good example. So Paul's basically saying, look, it's better for you to follow Christ and then we be thought to have failed than for you to not follow Christ and we be proven to be right so he's going to take the punch he's going to take the hit but it really is telling here you know this 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 dynamic between weakness and power paul is still saying look if if you're going to pass the test you have to embrace weakness if you if you're going to say you're a true believer in jesus christ you have to embrace the weakness of christ not just the power of christ Now, I don't know if there's anyone in the world who only embraces the weakness of Christ and never embraces the power of Christ. That would also be wrong. But our temptation typically is not leaning in that direction. Right? Our temptation is to want to embrace all the good and not the bad. And it reminds me of when Jesus is preaching and he's telling this huge crowd, you know, you've got to drink my blood and eat my flesh. And they all start to leave. Jesus is constantly pushing people away. And he turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? they say, Lord, where else would we go? They don't say, oh, this is a great message. We're going to stay because your message is wonderful. They don't say, oh, we're going to stay because this is going to bring us what we want. It's going to give us glory. They wanted glory. They were asking for glory after this moment. Hey, Jesus, can I sit at your right hand in the throne room of heaven? Goodness. They didn't get it no they said we're going to stay because you know where else will we go where else will we go I mean there's no one else there's no other game in town you're the only one who have the words of truth so we'll, we'll stay Jesus even though it's hard even though it's scary even though you're driving people off and you're close to driving us off we'll stay because we know that you're the only one that has what we really need that's what this process is like it's saying something like, I'll embrace the weakness of Christ because I know that's only, that's the only way I'll ever be able to embrace the power of Christ. Right? I, I don't like it. It's not fun. But it is the biblical, God-given, Jesus-oriented way to find the power of God is to embrace weakness. And then after telling them to examine themselves Paul gives them the final charge. He says, look, I want you to be restored. I want you to do the right thing. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Turn to me. (laughs) Do what's right. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. After all this long letter of weakness and shame and powerlessness and suffering and hardship, he says, finally, rejoice. Rejoice why can he say that how can he say that because the joy and the hardship they're cousins they go together somehow in the mind of Christ and the economy of God they fit you go through one to get to the other if you really want joy in your life you can't run from the hard things if you really want peace in your life then you can't make peace your priority. You have to make facing difficulties your priority. That's the only way you work through them. That's the only way you find peace on the other side. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Again, it's just, in the Greek, it's just the word perfection. Maturity. Um, and, And the interpreters are interpreting it as Perfect harmony here. Strive for this maturity, perfection, harmony. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. By the way, how do you become of one mind with someone you disagree with? It usually takes some unpleasant conversation. <laughs> It usually means intentionally going into the areas you disagree about, hashing it out, making your points as forcefully as you can, but also listening as graciously as you can to theirs, and then finding some common ground that you can land on together. Uh, Another word for this might be a debate or an argument. Now, some arguments are fruitless. Some arguments are fruitful. It takes wisdom to know the difference, but you don't get... You don't become of like mind with someone without going through that difficult process. It's impossible. The only other way would just be to forget what you believe and just take wholesale someone else's opinion. Right? Live in peace, he says. Live in peace. How do you live in peace? Peace takes effort. You know, I was thinking just yesterday and I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I grew up in a huge church, okay? At its peak, it had about 5,000 people in it. And it's the kind of church that if you were upset with someone, then you could be in that church for the next 30 years and never talk to them, and you'd never even really notice it, right? You just don't have to see them. And if you see them, you just turn the other way in the crowd and they'll never see you. And if they do the same thing, then hey, you got no problems. You can live in harmony with that person for 30 years in the same church but never resolve your conflict. I don't even know if that happened. I'm just saying it's possible. You get the point, right? And then I was thinking, could that happen in our church? And I'll say this. If you did that here, it'd be a lot harder. (laughs) I guess you could do it it'd be a lot harder why because you have to see each other because you're going to have to talk to each other because if you avoid each other it'll be obvious right but here's the thing that discomfort is better for you than the comfort of being able to avoid someone for 30 years and and call yourselves you know part of the same body of Christ and this isn't to down big churches it's just a thought I had So Paul's saying, look, you need to go have those difficult confrontations. You need to have those difficult conversations. You need to go to encourage the person who's in sin to gently restore them, but that's a difficult topic to reach. You need to do what Jesus says and confront your brother who sinned against you. And if they turn to you, you've won them over, fantastic. But if not, then you go again with someone else. And if they still don't repent, you take it before the whole church. These are not comfortable things, but they're the only way to have peace, to have like-mindedness. In the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells the church, there's a man in sin and he's proud of his sin. You need to kick him out of the church. You need to let Satan deal with him. Satan can destroy his body, but the Lord can destroy his soul. So you need to hand him over to Satan so that God can save him. That's not pleasant. But if you do this, look what he says. If you do these things, the, the God of love and peace will be with you. All right? The God of love and peace will be with you. You need to be restored to full fellowship. You need to be restored to, to maturity, restored to this, this perfection. And then the God of love and peace will operate in your midst because you are a people of love and peace. All right? Greet one another with a holy kiss. You know, for years, um, I went to a church where Sonia was going before we met, which is Line of Judah in Boston. It's a Latino congregation. And every time you enter the building, you get a lot of kisses and a lot of hugs. It's really hard to kiss and hug people that you're at odds with. That's a very intimate, close thing. So again, it kind of forces you to take care of stuff, Right? And then he just ends with all God's people here send their greetings and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all All right. So what is Paul doing here? He's basically saying look This is your last chance Right, you either need to come together as one body and reject evil and embrace truth and goodness and love and faithfulness or I'm going to come and i'm going to take care of business I'm not going to hold back anymore. No more Mr. Nice Guy. No more Mr. Weak Paul. You're going to get the strong Paul. You're going to get the the Paul that's operating out of the resurrection of Christ instead of the crucifixion of Christ. He's going to do it reluctantly. This is so important. Paul embraces the power of God reluctantly and embraces the weakness of God as a norm. Do you see that paradigm? I mean, if you've been with us in this book over the last few months. You have, ha- you have to have seen that paradigm. Paul embraces the power of God reluctantly, and he embraces the weakness of God as a standard, as normal. That's the way he is most of the time. And he's giving them an ultimatum. He says, look, you're either, you're going to go one of two ways here. You're either going to continue to pursue only the power of God, in which case you will have failed the test. And by, Christ's word, and by Paul's words, he means Christ is not in you. Because there should be some fruit of the, of the living Christ in you that would help you to be drawn to the things of Christ. And that's not just power. He says, or you will embrace and pursue the crucified and weak Christ and you will pass the test. And church, this is a test that we, need to, that we need to enter into on a regular basis. I know that as soon as I leave this room, my first temptation in the face of conflict will be to embrace power. Okay? It will be to embrace power. I'm going to dig my heels in. I'm going to set myself, and I'm going to make sure that I don't get pushed around. That's what I'm going to do when I'm not preaching to you about embracing weakness. Okay? And then if there's someone loving there, they will alert me to it and then I can shift over to where I need to spend 95% of my time, which is in humility, which is in self-giving, self-sacrifice, which is in putting others ahead of myself, which is in embracing the weakness of the crucified Christ. And then only in those rare moments where God ordains, should I be embracing that stance of power to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ against all his foes. Right? Against lies. Against demonic attacks. Right? Look, if you're facing a demon, you embrace the resurrected Christ and you declare to that demon that it has no authority there. Okay? Let's be very clear. 95% of the time, you're probably not talking to a demon. Embrace weakness, embrace humility. Does that make sense? This is the charge, church. This is the plea. This is what Paul was calling the Corinthians to. This is what the Lord Jesus is calling you and me to today. Let's pray. Lord, it is so hard. Uh, it is so hard for each of us